into Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma. I'm your host, Trish Glose, and I'm coming at you from my kitchen. On today's episode, it is a blast from my past, my dear childhood friend from Aiken, South Carolina, Suzanne Cups. Suzanne and I became friends in middle school, fast friends, and uh, she filled me in on what she's been up to the last few decades. For the girl who says she really didn't like to cook growing up, really didn't even care about food, she's now an incredibly talented chef in New York City. So, of course, we talk about culinary school, where really all of that started, the restaurants she's worked in, how she's moved up through the ranks at some of those restaurants, and why sourcing local and vegetables are incredibly important to her and really her passion. Things have shifted a bit for her. She recently left her latest restaurant because she's embarking on a new journey, which I'm super excited to share with you. I have to dedicate this episode to all of our friends, all of our peeps, from Aiken, South Carolina, and all of the successes that they've had in the last several years. Here's Suzanne Cups. Well, this is a blast from the past. Suzanne Cups, thanks for being here. Thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here. So fun to see a, a familiar face. Well, not so familiar anymore. But. I know, I know. So Suzanne Cups, I know you as Suzanne Pariso. We actually met, I want to say, I think sixth grade. Sixth grade? Mm-hmm. Uh, That's when I moved to South Carolina. Kennedy Middle School. And uh, you, I think it was my middle school really scared me. <laughs> and so <laughs> you and I became became pals in middle school. And uh, sadly, we, we sort of separated in, in high school and then I moved away. But um, I'm really glad a couple of our mutual friends told me to reach out to you for this podcast because... You're a foodie. You're a chef in New York. Yeah, I know. I um, so I, I I like I looked up your picture. And I was like, wait, that's not Trisha. Trisha. Um, Trisha. Yeah, and um, yeah. just like I remember you as this young, blonde-headed, mm-hmm. obnoxious. <laughs> well, we're all young at that point. Um, but so many memories. I I feel like you know, it's hard sometimes to remember all the details of, of growing up. But when I heard your name and looked you up, I was like, oh, my gosh, so many of my my young memories, mm-hmm. um, you know, were with you. So mm-hmm. yeah, we were, um, I was telling a friend of mine, we were, we were besties in middle school, you and me, I remember doing projects together. I remember going over to your house, I vividly remember your mom. <laughs> Like yeah. vividly. And um, in fact, on your Instagram, I think there's a picture of her somewhere. And I was just blown away. Like it just it's wild, right? All of these memories just come come flooding back. Yeah, I told my mom yesterday I was talking to her that um, we were going to, um, you know, have a conversation today. Mm-hmm. And I was like, someone I haven't seen in, you know, I don't know, <laughs> like 25 years. Um, and so it was fun. And she immediately remembered who you were. Oh, so. funny. Yeah, I um, I think that's the obnoxious side of me. People tend to not forget about that. Um, but it also, I oh, sorry, go ahead. Good. No, middle school, everybody's a little obnoxious, I believe. Yeah, big time. <laughs> um, and we were in we were in Kennedy on stage together. Do you remember Kennedy mm-hmm. on stage? And cheerleading. And cheerleading. That's right. I forgot about cheerleading. Yes, everyone. We were cheerleaders. Get over it. Um, no, that's awesome. And I wrote down, you know, here our connection. And I just love that, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter how long it's been. You still have you still have those fond memories, right? Especially of 
of your friends. In fact, um, I follow a lot of the old Aiken peeps on social media. And so I wanted to give all of them a shout out right now. So I hope they're going to listen to this or I hope they are listening. But all of those women that we were either friends with or we're still connected to or just anyway, um, they're all so successful in their own way. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I am opposite. I'm terrible at um, not only keeping in touch, but following. I'm, I'm like the last to, um, one of the last to join the social media trend <laughs> and also have a hard time just even keeping up with what's going on in my little world, much less, um, you know, outside of it. But I think that um, one thing that's interesting is even if you don't remain friends or you don't keep in touch mm-hmm. over the years, like those people, you know, you, um, all the my friends from Aiken, they shape my life so much. And that's why I am who I am. You know, I've, I've um, you know, I've definitely taken a journey that was unpredicted, mm-hmm. especially back then. But, um, you know, you and and all of all of our friends have um, you know, taught me all those foundational things that I needed to get where I am. So sure. Well, that's a really sweet of you to say. But yeah, definite a huge shout out to all of our all of our old pals at uh, South Aiken High School and Aiken High School for me. Um, and uh, yeah, I just I have so many fond memories of of Aiken, South Carolina, for sure. Um, and you probably aren't very connected on social media because, girl, you've been busy. I did a little bit of research. Holy cow. Let's start, though, from the beginning. I mean, I know you lived in South Carolina, but where are you from originally? So I grew up in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and um, my family, we we were the only ones there. So it wasn't we didn't have a ton of family around us, but um, grew up there till I was 11. And then when I was 11, uh, my dad was transferred to a job in South Carolina. So that's that's how we um, ended up in Aiken. Mm-hmm. And my parents are actually still there and uh, my sister and her family as well. So I definitely uh, try to get back every once in a while. Awesome. And if I remember, you have an older sister and an older brother? Yes, um, older sister. um, And my brother is out in Denver with his family. Wow. Okay. And I also remember, I feel like they were, I don't want to say significantly older, but you're the baby. But they, they were the baby. my pretty... sister's 10 years older. My brother's seven years older. That's yeah. what I thought. Yeah, I, I'm still they still treat me like the baby. <laughs> well, because you are the baby baby. The babies of the family rule. I was Yeah, I'm definitely I'm the baby too. Um, but yeah, I do remember. And where's your dad? Where's your dad from originally? My dad's Filipino. That's right. That's right. Um, and so my question, I guess, when growing up, did he bring a lot of that culture into your family at a young age? Yeah, he did. Um, a lot of ways I, I, you know, didn't understand. I think as you get older, you kind of see see more of what makes up your parents. But um, definitely from a food perspective, uh, my dad was not one, especially when I was growing up. He was not one for sandwiches um, or any anything like that. He had to have rice every single night for dinner. And my mom was the cook. So my mom, um, even though she's not Filipino, uh, adopted a lot of those recipes Um and pretty much we had rice every night for dinner, stir fries. There wasn't a lot. I think it's, um, you know, it's changed and grown since since I was young there. But um, there wasn't always access to a lot of the ingredients that traditionally you would find in Filipino cooking. But um, there was enough that, um, you know, my mom could make dishes that felt Filipino to my dad. Um, mm-hmm. And and I hated the food. <laughs> 
I was, uh, I, you know, I was an American kid who, you know, didn't, mm -hmm. didn't enjoy eating rice every night for dinner. So I would, you know, try everything from like putting ketchup or Thousand Island or something on it to, to try to make it more interesting to me. But, oh, yeah. um, you said finding, you know, finding traditional ingredients in Aiken, South Carolina was tough. <laughs> shocker. <laughs> <laughs> what a shocker. Um, it's a little I, better now. Yeah. There's definitely some, some changes that have happened. <laughs> well, that's good. That's amazing. So did your mom... I mean, you said she adopted some of these, you know, I guess, recipes and dishes. Did she teach herself? Did she reach out to to learn those things? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I don't even know how, how it came about. Well, one of the one of the things was how she met my dad. Um, they lived in Washington, D.C. when they met and my mom had a Filipino roommate. So, um, you know, back then, especially like no one went out you know, or very, very few times went out to eat. So you cooked at home. And so I'm sure she had picked up some of those, um, those like cooking techniques mm -hmm. from her roommate. But my mom even says, like said at their wedding, um, my mom and dad's wedding, um, they, uh, my, my mom and her sisters cooked all the food for the wedding and they cooked all Filipino food. So all these women who are from central Pennsylvania don't know anything about Filipino food. They, they cook Filipino food for, for the wedding. So, um, I think it was just something that she knew was important to my dad and, and, and kind of learned quickly. I love that. Is there, do you have a memory of something that she used to make, uh, maybe a Filipino dish that you did love? I know you said rice you yeah, struggled yeah, with. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Um, I, there was the, like the special kind of um, dish that not, not only special occasions, but it was a little bit more time consuming. So it wasn't like a, you know, Tuesday night dinner kind of thing was sure. um, pensit, which is the rice noodle dish. It's kind of very much like a fried rice or, um, you know, now like a pad thai that's so popular, um, very similar in, in types, um, but had lots of chopped vegetables. And that was always my favorite, that and um, leche flan, which is, you know, look very similar to like the Spanish uh, yeah. type of flan dish. Those were probably my favorites growing up. And one of the funny things, um, maybe we'll get to it later, but when I when I did start cooking in college, um, one of my one of my first big meals that I ever cooked was the um, pensit, the rice noodle dish. And and I, I'm not kidding you. And you can ask my roommates then. Uh, uh, it was about a four hour process for me trying to make this one dish. <laughs> to chop up everything. And probably now that I'm a chef, you know, I could probably make it in like 20 minutes or so. Of course. <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Um, and so you actually, you graduated high school in Aiken, right? South Aiken. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and then where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to Clemson. Oh, you did go to Clemson. Okay. Yay. Go Tigers. Um, yeah. What did you study? What, what were you thinking you wanted to be? <laughs> so I, um, one of the things growing up, like I did well in school, you know, whether it was middle school, high school. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I remember, you know, being uh, just beyond upset uh, at my first B, my only B, I think I had in, in yes. one order in high school kind of thing. I remember you being incredibly smart. One of the things I was very jealous of growing up, that and your hair. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, hair continue. Stuff, but, um, uh, yeah, I just, it was, it was that I, you know, I did well in classes. Um, and but there was there was nothing that I was like, really, really interested in. I kind of, um, I don't know if I want to say enjoyed every subject because that's that's definitely not true, but I never, nothing really stood out to me. So um, 
when I was, it was time to go to college. Um, I think my, my best subject was math and I always just excelled in it. And I guess, I guess, yeah, if you, if you said like, what did you like the most, I guess, um, you know, things like algebra and, um, kind of my, my mind worked that way. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. The only thing that I ever said, um, that was important to me is I didn't want to have a desk job. I wanted to be up on my feet. I wanted to be, um, you know, moving around, whatever that meant at that point. And because I, I was good at math, I said, well, why don't I be, a, you know, why don't I try to become a math teacher? So I went to college with, um, uh, like an education major, mm-hmm. um, um, math kind of focus and, um, you know, took it from there. And to be honest, like even through all my classes, I liked them fine, but I was not definitely not engaged in, mm-hmm. in most of the the classes I, I was taking. Um, and so I just kind of kept with the same major, even though um, I wasn't so sure about it. Hmm. Interesting. And then you moved to New York after school. Yeah, I um, well, I made it through all of my classes. And then this is when I think I think that I always just kind of went with the flow and, you know, did things that I thought either my parents would like or what was expected of me and um, didn't really challenge that that thinking too much. Not that my parents, you know, said you have to be a math teacher by any means, but, um, you know, they saw that I excelled at it and, you know, I did well at Clemson and mm-hmm. I got to the last semester and all I had to do was student teach and I just like I was dreading it. I just like, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go to the classes. I didn't want to get up at, you know, 6am, go to the high school and, and teach. And I thought like, oh, this is a red flag. Like if I don't want to do this in my, you know, even, you know, before it's a real job and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just student teaching, like, how am I going to make it through this as a career? And I also felt strongly that as a teacher, you have to be really passionate and especially in math, because, you know, I don't know, 75% of kids like hate math. And so how can you go into that career? I don't, that's not a real statistic. That's probably, I I hated (laughs) math. So yeah, I believe it. Um, But how do you, how do you like start up on that career and not be really excited to, to kind of teach? And so um, that last semester at Clemson, I decided to, to switch my major and minor. And so I ended up um, uh, switching it to math major and education minor, which meant I had to take all these um, like 300 level math classes that had no numbers anymore. It was all theory. I didn't understand. It was definitely not the way my my brain um, understood math. And so it was, they, they were pretty terrible, but it was the only thing I could do to get um, around that student teaching and, and yeah. graduate um, so I, I did an extra summer session and graduated as a math major. I was going to ask, <laughs> uh, changing your major at the very, very end, a uh, little stressful. Were were your parents freaking out? Were you freaking out? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I think it was just I was more dreading. I, I like to take classes in the summer, you know, an extra few months. Yeah seemed like a better deal to me than like to to go to the high school and, you know, spend my last semester at Clemson like immersed in this high school that I, I just wasn't interested in doing. So yeah. I don't remember there being too much stress at that moment. A couple months later was the one time when it got really stressful. But um, at that moment, I think it was just, I don't know, who else would have done that? Like most people would just have done it and graduated. I just, I knew I wasn't going to be happy if I had um, yeah. spent my last time. Well, time as you're, you were listening to your gut for sure. I just wrote that down because I feel like and you can correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like that's been a theme for you. 
um, through your career has been listening to your gut and listening to kind of really your passion. Um, so I guess why, then why New York? Why, why move to New York? You change your major, you graduate and then why New York city? Um, so when I was graduating, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I still didn't have an idea of, of what kind of job. And I think everybody that I knew was either moving to Charleston, South Carolina, or to Greenville, South Carolina, both, um, both small cities that I loved, but I just felt like I didn't want to do the same thing everybody did. Sure. I, I did it. And I, th- I kind of was like that a lot in especially more like high school where um, I wanted to be in the group of friends with everybody, but I didn't really want to always be in the group. If, if that made sense. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to be part of it, but I wanted to be able to do my own thing or kind of be on the outside a little bit. And I felt that same way um, leaving Clemson is that I didn't want to just get dragged along and do what everybody else was doing. And um, because I didn't have a place that I wanted to go and I didn't have a career that I had chosen yet, um, didn't know what I was really good at. Um, I thought, okay, let me look and let me see. So I, I interviewed um, for this like inside sales position in Greenville, South Carolina. And I said like, okay, this is a good job. Um, if I get it, then, you know, I could stay, I'll stay. Yeah. Um, thankfully I did not because I, it turns out I'm the worst salesperson in the world. <laughs> like, you know, I may ask like, would you like to buy this? No. Okay. Thank you. Hey, thanks. You bye. Know, that's, that's, that's about as pushy as I get in terms of, um, sales. Um, and so I just, I looked, my parents were in Atlanta at the time and I looked in Atlanta. I just, I couldn't find anything that I wanted to do. And, um, my brother was living in Philly at the time with his family and I had been up and he took me into New York city, um, for a weekend kind of thing. And I, once, once I got something in my head, like the, that little seed, mm-hmm. I just had a hard time dismissing it. And it was the year after nine 11. So everybody was very scared of New York. It was like, uh, yeah, exactly a year. Um, Everybody's very scared of New York. I had never lived on my own. I mean, Clemson is very sheltered and close to home. So never really like gone out, never expressed any interest in moving to New York City. Didn't have a job, didn't have any money, didn't have a plan. Um, Sounds perfect. Barely barely knew anybody. Um, And I just couldn't get out of my head. And I just thought like, I, if I don't, leave South Carolina right now. And again, I'm saying this not because it's a bad place to be just because I knew that I knew myself if I got comfortable and didn't get to, um, you know, push myself somewhere else, um, I probably would never leave. And I, that's, it felt important to me at the time to, um, kind of step out and, and try to do something different. And again, I was not adventurous. It was not something that had ever been on anybody's radar. I've never, I'd never said it out loud or even to myself, like, Hey, I want to move to a big city far away. Um, and it just kind of popped in my head and wouldn't go away. Yeah. And so, um, I ended up, uh, it was not the decision that my family was in support of, which I get it. It was, you know, it felt dangerous to them and it's expensive and, um, so I moved up here um, with my first month's rent and said, I'll find a job when I get here. And Whew, that's scary. That's scary. Yeah. I don't know. Very, I don't know very many people who could do that. And I do agree with you 
Um, I was forced to move out of South Carolina, uh, moving to Vegas at 16, which was talk about a culture shock. But I agree with you. I think if that didn't happen, I probably would still be living in South Carolina because I'm the same way. I get comfy and cozy and, you know, that whole like, you know, spreading my wings, I think, you know, would have happened, but I don't know if I would have moved very far away from South Carolina. So I think, I I don't know, I I understand what you're saying there, but uh, how scary, you know, how scary to move to a city and not just any city, this is New York City, and not knowing what you're going to do. Don't you don't have a job? You don't? Did you have a place to live? I mean, I mean, that's just frightening. to Yeah, there was, there was an acquaintance from college Mm -hmm. who Definitely. Yeah, we weren't friends, but we knew each other through someone and she found the apartment. It was a six floor walk up, um, you know, in the middle of Manhattan. And so I moved in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was your first job in the city? Um, so I had planned, I told my family, like, you know, I'll just get a job waiting tables and, you know, people, you'll I'll make lots of tips. You know, I, I went like probably three or four places and no one would hire me because like the especially the, I was looking at these like big steakhouses, these, the, the, the guys that worked at these steakhouses, you know, have 20 years of experience yeah. minimum. So like no one even like looked at my resume. And, um, and so I just opened at that time, like what you did open the paper, mm-hmm. I opened the New York times and there was an advertisement for, um, you know, $40,000 starting off college grads. Um, so I, I went to the interview and it was a sales position Uh-oh. and it was this, <laughs> uh they hired me on the spot it was this big room um where just all these college grads smart smart people were just cold calling mm-hmm. um for to put these like advertisements in sports publications and it was terrible i mean it was it was a horrible job um all you did was like you know get hung up on all day and try to make these pitches and it was very um you know it was it wasn't even that it was tough work. It was just like terrible work. Yeah. And I, I'm not kidding you. Like people would go to on their lunch break and like, just not come back. Like that's, that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, I believe it. And, but it allowed me to, you know, get my foot in the door and have enough money to, you know, live and eat bologna sandwiches every day for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it allowed me the opportunity to, to stay in New York and kind of get myself settled here. So I, I did it for about seven months. And then I just, one weekend, my sister was here and I was like, I can't go back. And she was like, don't quit because of me. I was like, no, no, I I just, I can't do it. Um, And I ended up um, getting a job next at the Waldorf Astoria, um, which is a really Mm -hmm. fancy, great hotel here. And um, got placed through a temp agency there and, um, and the human resources department and just loved it. And um, loved the boss. The whole team was amazing and uh, never really saw myself necessarily in HR, but just really, really enjoyed the whole atmosphere. And so I ended up working there for two years. And that's I, that's my first hospitality job. That's how I that's how I started in, in hospitality here. Mm-hmm. Did you find that you were becoming interested in the things that were coming out of the kitchen or were you really just focused on kind of that that position you had? It was very separate. That's a, it's a huge hotel. They um, they're under construction now, but they at that time there were like sixteen hundred rooms and fourteen hundred mm-hmm. employees around there. Um, so there it was very separate. Um, so I I didn't see anything in the the kitchen at all. Um, didn't didn't know anything about. I mean, I knew about like the positions. I did sure. a lot of paperwork. 
Um, but that was um, being in HR really just taught me about like hospitality and how big of an industry it is here. And I just couldn't even believe that I had never really thought of that as a career and and didn't even know that was uh, really an option in the hospitality world. And it's so funny because, you know, living and, and growing up in South Carolina, hospitality is just like the base level. Like you go to someone's house, they feed you a ton. Like you can't ever, you can't ever be somewhere without someone taking care of you or mm-hmm. that's just like kind of the mindset. Um, of of a lot of places in the south and especially where we grew up um and it was just um i think that was like kind of the first eye-opening thing of like oh i want to be in hospitality and i thought um they had needed some help in the steakhouse in the their their steakhouse at, at the waldorf and so um a couple nights when i wasn't working in hr i um helped out um in the steakhouse and i thought oh, well, what if I become like a front of house manager um, hmm. in, in hotels? I, I really, I thought that was really interesting. And so that was kind of my my plan until it got derailed by culinary school. But um, I was I was thinking about becoming more of a front of house manager. Yeah, well, tell me about that connection then, because you're doing this, You're. it seems like you're kind of finally finding something that you really enjoy and my dog Samson's going to come say hi. Um, so where where did you make that connection then to food? Like where was this is Samson? <laughs> hi Samson. Yeah. <laughs> hi buddy. Hi. Sweet. Yeah. Um, so where did you make that connection then? When was it where you were like the light bulb went off? Did you have the light bulb moment? Like holy crap, this is what I want to do. Um, so I think that if you. Um, if you talk about like, why did I move to New York? And it was such an abrupt decision and, and definitely no one, none of my friends and my family saw that coming. I think if you ask the same friends and family um, about me and food and cooking, it, they would have no response because I was never interested in, in food. Yeah, I, read, I actually read that in an article that even growing up, you didn't like to cook. Like that, that was just not your I thing. Yeah. Um, you know, my mom cooked every night. She would try to get me to help out. Sometimes it was like my chore, you know, I would have to help. And I just, it was, it, I would do anything to try to, um, you know, get out of the kitchen work. Yeah. Um, I also wasn't really big on eating, you know, I had my favorite kind of meals, but I, I wasn't adventurous. I wasn't, um, I was just, wasn't interested in food. Hmm. Um, and it when I was in college about my junior year, uh, I was still in the dorm and that's when like George Foreman girls <laughs> were popular. And so, um, that's like some of the first things I cooked was like, you know, chicken breast on the George Foreman yeah. grill and like this quick and box brownies. And that's, that's how I like learned to like cooking, I, I should say. And so like my senior year, um, I would cook things for my, uh, roommates and you know hot dogs <laughs> yeah you know, uh i don't even know like we would we would make yeah mostly like brownies whatever things like that right, and, sure. and that's kind of how i got into cooking um and when uh when i was at the waldorf i really liked so many aspects i liked the hospitality i liked the team i was working with i just it went back to the i was sitting at a desk and i was doing Mm -hmm. tons of paperwork i mean like so much paperwork that i could never Mm -hmm. um like dig myself out of the hole 
And I just was not happy with that. And um, I was dating someone at the time who was an actor and he, you know, kept saying, you need to do something more creative. You need to. And I was like, what is that? You know, I don't I'm not creative. And so he made me go through this like workbook, which was a lot of like free writing, um, which was, you know, kind of like it would prompt you. Um, on some subject and then you would write a list of 10 things you were thinking about or 10 things you wanted to do or you know interesting and somehow cooking just kept coming up which again I was just doing very basic things at home I was not it was not something that I was like studying or um, I wasn't really eating I was in New York but I like spending money on food wasn't important Mm -hmm. to me Um, I didn't have any friends in the food world Um, but somehow cooking just kept coming up and so I ended up going to um, the one of the culinary schools here in the city, um, Institute of Culinary Education, just for a tour. And I walked in and I was like, I've never seen a professional kitchen. Like, what is this? Like, I didn't know there was cooking school. I didn't, I, I don't know. And again, it's that, that little thing that just got in my head and I just couldn't get mm-hmm. it out. Um, and so as I was like looking for what's my next job um, after HR, I just, it was, I was thinking about going into, you know, front of house management and I just, the cooking kept coming back and, you know, hmm. yeah, against all any, anybody else, any of the thoughts of my family and friends and everything, I just said, I'm going to go to cooking school. And, um, you know, everything in New York is expensive, but schooling especially. And so the, the six months of the cooking program here, um was more expensive than my four years at Clemson like oh my gosh wow Uh, and uh and my family was like you don't like to cook what are you talking about (laughs) why do you want to go to school and I just couldn't get it out of my head and um turns out that was a good thing but Mm -hmm. yeah no it really was so a six-month program um Mm -hmm. you did I think I read you did an externship at uh what restaurant um, my, my externship was at Gramercy Tavern. That's right. That's right. I ended up going back to later. Um, but I mean, it was all the first of things like never held a professional knife. You know, they give you all these tools to, mm-hmm. well, you buy them, but, um, you start with all these tools that I've never used before. I didn't know, you know, the differences between what cilantro was parsley. And I learned all of that. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely like a quick boot camp. I mean, six months. From, yeah. For me, knowing nothing to trying to learn how to work in a restaurant was um, was really quick. So um, really, when I started, my learning was um, mm-hmm. was when I when I started to work in restaurants. So I've interviewed quite a few chefs and the majority of them have worked in restaurants before culinary school or knew knew from a very early age that was exactly what they wanted to do. And it just was something that fit with them. And here you are, did not even like to cook, you know, never really had those skills. Were you, I don't want to say intimidated, but was it, were you surrounded by people like you that just were like, had never held a professional knife before? Or were you surrounded by people who maybe had more experience than you who had worked in kitchens? Right. So a lot of the cooking schools won't even take you unless you've worked in in a job in a kitchen. Yeah. So there was the the bigger culinary school, um, which is um, upstate uh, from from New York City, uh, Culinary Institute of America, which 
a lot of people I know went there. It's it's more of a two-year program. Mm -hmm. You could do longer, but um, most people go for two years. Um, they, I think, I think they probably still require you to have worked in in something in in uh, cooking before. But I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to move out of New York and live in a dorm again. You know, I had done that before, so I opted to take a shorter mm -hmm. program, which is a great program. Um, but yes, I think I was probably one of the only people that walked into that kitchen that hadn't ever, um, you know, set foot in, in yeah. a restaurant before or, or some kind of, not everybody was restaurants there. Um, and I think a lot of people in my class were career changers. Um, and I guess you could call me a career changer though. Yeah. I was so young. I didn't have a career yet, but, um, but a lot of people had, uh, you know, shifted what they were doing. And so either that they were a little older in life and wanted to not have a hobby, but kind of change, change their day to day, um, or else they were, um, had worked, you know, since a young age in kitchens and wanted a little bit of professional, um, training. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was definitely one of the only people, but it, it was a very, um, I would say sheltered environment, especially, um, you know, people think restaurants are scary and some, some are scary for people, but, um, but the, the cooking school was very, um, you know, generous with their instruction and, and not assuming that you knew too much and, um, a little hand holding. And, uh, so it didn't, it didn't feel like a scary environment um, to, to start off in. That's perfect. That's perfect. And I also, um, just your kind of your resume in the restaurants that you've worked in, it really seems like, you know, you sort of started at one level and then you worked your way up to this and then you worked your way up again and then you worked your way up again. Is that accurate? Yeah. When, when I first started cooking, I, one of the things that I was drawn to is that repetition. Um, you know, something that a lot of cooks get tired of is, doing the same thing over and over mm. until you get good at it. A lot of people just want to do it once and say like, check, check the box. Yeah. Like I'm ready for the next step. For me, I never had that confidence. And I always, I've always been a perfectionist. So I never was um, happy with just, just doing something like the, the idea that you continuously cut things into small square shapes until you are able to, you know, do it perfectly and have less waste and whatever that is. Um, and then do it in a different shape or, Mm -hmm. shape. Um, that was really enticing to me. And I think that, you know, when I was younger, math meant a lot of formulas and um, a lot of, uh, you know, whether it's geometry or algebra, and that's how I thought about math. But um, I think what the part of math that I was the best at is actually logic. So um, mm -hmm. a lot of those like puzzles, a lot of that, like, thinking of how do you do steps in a certain order, a lot of that um, is my math brain just kind of translated in a little different way. And a lot of people would have also guessed like, okay, you like math, then you should be, you'll, you'll probably need to be a pastry in pastry. You know, there's a lot more, mm -hmm. yeah, a lot That's more what I measuring thought. numbers. I was never like that. I always hated to measure. I always hated, um, I, I just like that kind of repetition that, um, perfectionism that, mm. uh, you know, the steps of how you do something was, was what I really, um, gravitated, gravitated towards. Yeah. Um, so well, that, that in culinary school started. And then once I got even, you know, in stepped into restaurants, that thing of doing it, the same thing every day, um, until you can do it perfectly. And then you can do it perfectly while you're doing something else. 
Um, and then instead of, you know, cooking the trout, then you can cook the piece of halibut. And then, mm -hmm. you know, like translating yeah. all that um, was, was, was really um, what got me. And it wasn't even interesting part of it. It was never even the flavors or the tasting. That was something that was very hard for me was to learn how to put the correct amount of salt or build flavor because I was so focused on the technique behind cooking. I wasn't interested yet in the taste or, um, you know, the flavors of, of food. Interesting. Yeah. I had a piano teacher who once told me when you play it the first time perfectly all the way through, then play it like that five to 10 times after. Sure. Yeah. Just because you played it that one time perfectly doesn't mean you're going to play it the same way every time after. Um, so when did you, when did you learn then that I mean, I knew you knew that flavor was important, but when did that kick in for you? The tasting part. So I, um, I, what you said about like working your way up to a yeah. point and then going for the mm -hmm. next thing that is that, that can kind of sum up my career. And when I started cooking, I really loved it, um, for a number of reasons, but I never really aspired to become a chef or to become a sous chef or to like, um, you know, kind of, work my way up. I just really liked the job of being a cook. So I did my quick, my externship at Gramercy Tavern, um, which is one of the biggest restaurants here in, in New York City and um, still one of the most beloved. Um, and I was there for three months and, you know, was in the basement peeling potatoes. And, you know, I never, I didn't know how to like stand in a kitchen, much less um, you know, the hustle and bustle and, and understand the speed that you have to work and all that. So it was a really great, um, you know, three months of just kind of absorbing what was going on and trying to learn like, you know, this much. Um, and when my externship was done, I said, thank you. They said, thank you. And I went on my way and I ended up, um, I didn't know where to go to work. And, uh, one of the girls in my uh, culinary class was like, oh, there's an opening at um, Anissa restaurant. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, didn't know. I didn't know any restaurants, but I didn't know what Anissa was or who Anita Lowe, the chef owner, was. And I said, oh, cool. So I went there <laughs> and uh, didn't know anything about the restaurant. And um, she hired me on the spot and uh, I worked for six years for her. Wow. And she taught me how she taught me how to cook. She taught me everything. And uh, the, unfortunately, the restaurant's uh, no longer open, but um, it, it was an amazing restaurant. Um, and Anita traveled a ton, and um, she had a great. Well, she has she has a great palate, and so she was always bringing in new flavors and new ideas. And um, it was just an amazing place to kind of start my culinary journey. Um, and at that time, again, I was still like very, very focused on how do I get better how, that, at specific techniques. So my knife skills got very good, you know, like the, the knife cuts, um, like sauteing or grilling of, of meat and fish and everything. Like um, it took me a little while, but I really excelled at um, kind of cooking in the kitchen. Um, but where I was very weak was... Um, still like tasting and understanding, like, how do I create dishes or how do I, um, you know, get those flavors right? Or how, even how do I enjoy food? It still wasn't there. So that, um, that six years was really for me, um, learning about technique and also working under a woman chef who apparently that wasn't a thing, but I didn't know it cause she was my first chef. So yeah. I, I, 
know that women weren't weren't chefs. <laughs> no, it's very rare. Very still, cool. I mean, it's still really rare, actually. Um, uh, yeah. You know, the the industry is very male dominated, but I I think that is incredibly awesome. That one, you worked under a female chef, and two, you were there so long. And I have a feeling you probably learned the majority of your skills in that setting versus like cooking school. It was kind of like journalism school for me. They could teach us everything, but until you got that first job, I mean, that was my, that was my graduate school was that first job, that first like year of working in a newsroom. So I have a feeling it was the same. Yeah. I mean, for me, culinary school was so important because I would have never had Mm -hmm. um, the nerve to, to walk into a restaurant and say, can I have a job with no experience? Mm -hmm. So for me to be able to, um, just have, you know, a couple things that were taught to me, even if I didn't know really how to do them and for the, the school counselor to be able to set up an interview with, you know, at a restaurant or set up an externship, um, was so important because I would have never had, you know, the guts to go and, you know, and get in a restaurant myself. Uh, you were the executive chef at Untitled for um, a number of years, is what I read. Okay, so tell Correct. me about that. Um, so just to kind of backtrack a little bit so you can understand the connection. Um, after I was at Anissa for six years, I went um, back to Gramercy Tavern, who, mm-hmm. who um, the kitchen was under a different chef, uh, Mike Anthony. And really, that's where when I went to work, Um, For him, that's when I really got excited about sourcing and food and vegetable cooking. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's also when I got interested in kind of moving up the ranks in the kitchen. Because before that, I just really enjoyed cooking and being a line cook. And then when I went to Gramercy, I I said, oh, like, maybe I want to be a sous chef. Like, maybe, Mm. you know, maybe I do want to move up. And so I um, ended up uh, a little after, over a year of cooking at Gramercy, became a sous chef and was a sous chef there for about three years. And um, and when it was kind of, you know, I was talking to the chef, Mike, of like what what my next steps would be. And, you know, again, still didn't see myself becoming a chef. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, he kept encouraging me to continue, you know, continue on this path. And um, he had the opportunity to open um, another restaurant with the same company. Uh, so we work for uh, Union Square Hospitality Group, is which one of the the largest hospitality groups here in the city. Yeah. Um, and they were um, reopening a restaurant called Untitled. I wrote this down. It really seems like some of these restaurants you worked in, you were making a name for yourself, is what it seemed like to me. Uh not not for a while I think again that wasn't necessarily my goal Mm -hmm. um my goal like when I was at Gramercy was to to learn and to kind of be part of that restaurant um and the the mentality there was team so it wasn't like you know a lot of places a lot of chefs are kind of shown as being these like big ego you Uh know kind of um Folks, when I was at Gramercy, it was it was not that way. It was we. It was you know, this is our dish. This is this is the food of Gramercy. And so you know, obviously we had a very talented um, chef, James Beard, um, award winner. But um, but the mentality was always like it was a team effort. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was um, 
it was kind of ingrained in me that cooking is a sport and, and the, you know, you can't really get ahead unless you have a really strong team. Um, so when I had been at Gramercy for almost four years, uh, Mike Anthony, the chef had an opportunity to open another restaurant. Um, so he was still staying at Gramercy, but also opening another one within the company, um, called Untitled. And, um, the Whitney Museum uh, used to be up on the Upper East Side and they moved to this like very beautiful, um, uh, very high profile architectural building by Renzo Piano in the meatpacking. So the, the, like, the lower West Side of Manhattan and um, they were moving the restaurant Untitled to that space. Um, and it was just a totally different concept, different space. And so um, Mike, uh, signed on to become the chef of Untitled. And he said to me, like, why don't you come along with me? And why don't you be the chef de cuisine? And again, like, I just didn't have necessarily, it's not that I didn't have aspirations. I just, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't even know that was an option for right. me to kind of continue along. Um, I was doing well as a sous chef. I enjoyed being a sous chef, um, but I loved Gramercy and I didn't, um, I wasn't thinking about what exactly that that next step was. And um, so I ended up moving with him uh, to Untitled and we took a, a number of the folks that we had been working with at Gramercy to Untitled and we opened this um, kind of huge restaurant. It was um, the museum opening was a big deal in New York and it was uh, it was crazy. There was nuts, people everywhere. And we were running um, not only Untitled on the ground floor, but also the museum's um, cafe on the eighth floor called Studio Cafe. Wow. So it was a very um, crazy and uh, <laughs> very intense experience trying to open two restaurants when the museum was opening too. Yeah. Um, so we learned a lot, a lot about like, what do people that are um, tourists that are at this museum, what are people that are New Yorkers that are coming to this museum want? What do our guests that we already knew that were fans of Gramercy that are coming here, what do they want? And it was very, some contradiction, contradicting ideas of what we should be serving in the restaurant. So it was definitely a learning experience, um, but uh, just built a really strong team and a great following there and, and just loved it so much. And after about um, a couple of years of Mike being the chef, um, he decided to go to back to Gramercy full time. And um, I was promoted to executive chef of the restaurant. So it was a, it was a big deal. And um, you know, a big leap in my career and to have a, a very large team kind of working, working with me uh, was, was just an experience that I could have never imagined and was so thankful to have. Badass. That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, good for you. That's incredible. And so how long did you work at Untitled? Um, I was there about four years. Okay. And you were executive chef for how long there? Um, a little over two. Okay. So was there, um, and I guess let's talk then about 232 Bleecker because there was this opportunity for you at this restaurant, but it never really, um, this was the restaurant that opened right before the pandemic. Right. So I, um, I really loved what we had started Untitled and like the idea of kind of contemporary vegetable cooking and not, and, and I, don't, I don't say vegetable cooking as in vegetarian. So I, I'm not a vegetarian chef. Um, I love cooking 
um, vegetable dishes, but um, it's more about like the sourcing and and mm -hmm. the um, quality of ingredients that really um, kind of drives how I cook and 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 what I like to make in the kitchen. And um, I felt like, uh, you know, I had been in Untitled for four years, and um, it was kind of the the next chapter for me to continue to move on. And found another group in um in the city here that was also very like-minded and and how they think about vegetables and and food and um and it's a really amazing company that has all fast casual restaurants mm -hmm. um called the dig food group mm -hmm. so they have a ton of restaurants here um and they were looking to open their first full service restaurant and i got kind of hooked up with them and um just really enjoyed their chef and um, and their CEO and, and our conversations about food and, um, and the space that they had chosen in the West Village in, um, on Bleecker Street was just incredible. And they had bought a wood-burning grill and they wanted to make vegetables the star of the restaurant and just everything kind of felt aligned to me. And um, so I, we got to, you know, do all the things that go into an opening, uh, all the crazy um, long hours and all the stressful things of trying to get the gas turned on and trying to get your liquor <laughs> license, and, you know, all the, all the things that behind the scenes, um, a lot of, um, you know, guests don't, don't mm -hmm. know <laughs> goes into a restaurant, but even the fun things like, you know, picking the plateware and making a menu and, and researching that menu and testing it again and again, and picking a team and all that. Um, it was amazing. And we, we really, um, had a great setup and um, some really, really talented individuals and on a beautiful corner in the West Village. And um, so we opened um, December uh, 16th of 2019, um, right before the holidays and everything. And it was just, it, it was great. It, it was, um, the energy was wonderful. The team was like really, really doing well. And, um, you know, it, it is a long stretch when you do an opening and, mm -hmm. you know, whether you're, um, just like learning how to do things and, you know, get better at them, teaching your cooks, um, you know, whether it's like troubleshooting all the things that you forgot about in the restaurant or you yeah. overlooked open, um, and also like the process here in New York, especially like the review process of, you know, having the critics come and trying to catch them in your restaurant and, you know, make sure that they have a great meal and all those, all those little things, because it does matter. Um, you know, we don't, we don't create restaurants for critics um, necessarily, but their voices are loud and we want to make sure that um, we put our best foot forward so that more people can know about the restaurant and, and come see us. And so, you know, we were doing all those things and, um, and, uh, yeah, we were open exactly three months, um, for when we had to shut and shut down in March. I so can't. it was, um, that sounds yeah. heartbreaking. That sounds absolutely heartbreaking. Well, I think it was hard to be, uh, to take it personally because there were so many businesses, yeah. you know, around the world. Um, there were, it, there were so many places in New York that immediately had to shut down and, um, and so it was hard to just, you know, think it was only, I mean, it wasn't only happening to us. It was, it was just all of our industry peers and friends, um, were, you know, having their hearts broken. So not that it, that made it easier. It just, it was a collective, um, kind of, um, challenge for the, the whole industry here. Yeah. Did you guys end up, uh, you ended up opening back up though, right? 
Yeah. So we were, we were closed for three months and then we tried to do, you know, all the things that people have tried to do to, to survive, mm-hmm. you know, trying to do meal kits and take out. And we did a, like a store for a lot while, like a little wine shop that we sold mm-hmm. baked goods and we did food to go. And, you know, New York was kind of back and forth. We definitely, you know, especially in those, those first, that first part of the pandemic, we were the, the ones that took a lot of the brunt of what was going on big time. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, people were scared to go out and the rules kept changing, you know, sometimes you couldn't do anything indoor and then you could only do outdoor seating. And then it went back, then it went to some indoor, some outdoor, and then it went back to outdoor. And it was just kind of a little all over the place um, where you could build a structure outside, but the rules kept changing on what that looked like. So, um, some of the things that I was really thankful for, one of them was um, we obviously couldn't keep our whole team, um, but I was able to, you know, continue to work with a lot of the folks that I've been working with for a number of years. And so um, even though it was uh, a tough time, uh, you know, had, had uh, some, some troopers by my side. So that was great. And then I never had done takeout ever in any restaurant. I worked, never really wanted to, but right. um, learned that. And I think that was a skill that is was very important. And it was something something new that I needed to learn. So learning how to do takeout, um, we did like a lot of meal kits. Um, so how do you how do you make your food? How do you package it? You know, I I remember the one of the first kits we sent out, um, we had made this like chipino, so like a seafood kind of bouillabaisse type stew and, you know, put the lids on and, and, you know, they all exploded in the truck on the delivery. So like learning, oh, okay, you have to buy the locking lids that don't, you know, that you see in the grocery stores that, that you can't open and they yeah. won't explode. So learning how does our food translate? Because a lot of what you do in a restaurant is you make food and you immediately serve it to the guest that's sitting right there. Well, how do we create really delicious food and keep the integrity of what we're doing, but do it takeout or do it, yeah. you know, and thing that's people have to reheat. And um, so that was a great learning experience. And I think that's something that will be valuable to my career mm-hmm. in the future, even if I don't ever want to do strictly takeout. Um, it's still something that I was able to learn. So I also, you know, had to go back to, I think in a restaurant, you always have to jump in wherever is needed. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what position you are, if you're the owner, if you're the chef, if you're the wine director, you know, that's how it goes, whatever the, whatever's needed for the day, you have to jump in and do, but even more, I think during the pandemic, you know, I was working garmage, like the salad station and I was opening and, you know, mm-hmm. washing dishes at the end of the night. And, um, you know, my whole team who are sous chefs, they're all back of house cooks and managers. They were working, you know, front of house duties some days to make tips. And it was just, yeah. it was a little bit all over the place. And I think, that as hard as that was for us, it was such a, such a eye-opening, not even eye-opening. It was just a learning experience. Like we kept learning and we kept, um, you know, doing new things and, and um, which kind of takes me to where I am now is 
um, a lot of those those things in the restaurant. So I, I went to culinary school in 2005 and started working in restaurants in 2006. So that's, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. And a lot of those things that I could have never imagined, those skills, um, you know, not just the chopping and the, you know, cooking techniques, but how do you write a schedule? How do you, you know, lower your food cost? How do you, you know, how do you make dishes on the menu so that a vegetarian or someone that has a peanut allergy or, you know, whatever those things are, um, you know, all those pivots that you, that feel scary at the beginning, once you are able to just do it and do it over and over again, it becomes less scary. And so I think the pandemic allowed me a lot of opportunities to say, okay, now I've done delivery. Now I've done takeout. Now I've worked front of house. Now I know how a dish pit should be set up all these things. And it just gave me the confidence to say, okay, I think I've never had the, I've never, uh, made the decision that eventually I want to open up my own restaurant, but now I've done all these things. And so I feel like that's the next step for me. So well, it gave me, you know, a lot of, um, kind of confidence to do the, do the next part. Well, that's awesome. And kudos to you, kudos to your team and really kudos to everybody in the food service industry that has managed to survive because I know a lot of people haven't, and it's really incredibly sad. And, you know, I've, I harp on this a lot, but if you go to a restaurant that's just reopened, even right now with all of the shortages that so many businesses are facing, just be patient and be kind because (laughs) I mean, I I just, it infuriates me to think that there are people who will go to a restaurant and that that are rude to a server who's just trying to do their job. It absolutely uh, fires me up, but I have a lot of friends who are chefs and I have a lot of friends who are in the restaurant industry and just, um, be nice, (laughs) be nice, especially if, if you're, if you're going out there, if you're spending the money to go have an, you know, a nice meal, just be patient because you guys had to learn a completely new ball game. And a lot of you have evolved and and made it happen. And a lot have sadly have not. So, um, that's my, that, that's my PSA for today. Just be nice, everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, If you're going out to eat. Um, but I'm glad that you mentioned your next step because, uh, you did get out of the restaurant biz. You're doing some stuff right now um, on the side, but what's next for you? Yeah, so I left in um, June mm-hmm. and I'm um, just doing private chefing now. Um, it's very hard to think about opening your own restaurant while you're in a different restaurant because it's very um, all all consuming sure. um, when you when you're um, you know working in another space. So just kind of taking a moment to, um, you know, figure out exactly where, um, where is the best place for the restaurant here? I'm, I'm planning on opening in New York city. Um, but like what neighborhood is the best and what size and, you know, just kind of tweaking that concept a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and, and figuring out like, you know, what restaurant do I want to, do I want to run for the next 10, 15 years? Um, and it's a, it's an exciting, it's, it's no longer scary, but it's exciting. And, um, you know, yes, there's a lot to do, but I'm looking forward to, you know, having my hands in all those details. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And I, um, all the way over on the West coast, I'll I'll be pulling for you. So, um, I'll be watching for sure. I'm very, very excited for you. And then also I want to mention, um, you just, uh, recently August of this year, uh, one of your recipes landed in food and wine. That's dope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always fun. You know, I, so many of the 
the things that I never, um, you know, imagined myself getting uh, to do have all centered around the food world, whether it's traveling, um, mm-hmm. you know, getting to take to meet so many, so many influential people. Um, and also, you know, to be part of publications like Food and Wine, it's, um, it's really an honor. Yeah, it's cool. Um, and you, of course, did uh, roasted carrots, you did something that centered around carrots. Why? Why vegetables? What is it about vegetables? I know, you know, you talked about sourcing local is a big deal for you. But what is it specifically about vegetables that you just that really lights your fire? So I think that um, vegetables can be um, an afterthought or a side note for so many people. Um, And even the people that, you know, say they like vegetables, a lot of, you know, they could probably name on three fingers the vegetables they actually really like. And so the idea that um, that vegetables can be the star of a meal and can be as exciting as um, a protein is something that I've really tried to um, dig into and um, explore and get people excited about. Um, and a lot of it does have to do with like the sourcing aspect. And, you know, we're, we're very lucky here, not only in, in, in the city, not just to have great farmers, because there are great farmers all across the country, but we have the access. And I think that's one thing that New York City has done very well. And, you know, a lot of it because of the number of restaurants that are here, but the access and the distribution of these amazing vegetables are, um, you know, it, it's not just for restaurants, it's also um, for home cooks um, available. I was at the um, green market today and there's one in particular that I go to um, three or four times a week, the Union Square Green Market, which is kind of in the center of New York. Um, and it's not even just like going in to be able to pick up um, produce, it's also those relationships. I know the people that grow the food right. and I know the organic practices that they, that they, um, you know, follow. And it's not, it's not just a, you know, a label on something. It's also like, it tastes better and they're the diversity of vegetables. So it's not just like buying an orange carrot, but they have rainbow carrots and they have, you know, 50 varieties of peppers and each one is very nuanced and, and is each one my favorite? No, but like learning, um, how to work with, um, you know, uh, a diversity of vegetables to, to keep them going mm. is, is really important. And so, um, you know, again, knowing the people, not just the farmer, not just like the vegetable farmers, but also um, a lot of the other ingredients, whether it's the fish or the meat that we buy is, is so important. So right. that's something that, um, you know, carrots, I think are particularly like, no one really gets excited about carrots. Like you either like carrot sticks or you don't. Um, but one way that I've learned to cook them is when you keep them whole and, and whole roast them in the oven, it's super easy. And you can do them at home, like at a high temperature, like 400 and they just change the taste and they become sweet and the texture is different. And then you can grill them. You can throw honey on them, hot honey, you know, you can put maple, you can, um, do a jerk seasoning. There's so many different recipes that you could make with them, but I like the idea that taking an unassuming vegetable and presenting it in a way that is super exciting for people so that they, it's not pushing vegetables down people's throats. It's just really, um, you know, showing them something new mm-hmm. so they can, you know, do it on their own. Yeah. A little enlightenment, if you will. Yeah. Cause I agree. I think sometimes vegetables get a bad rap. So 
Um, <laughs> it's nice to see that you're putting them in the spotlight. And in fact, carrots, roasted carrots are on my menu this year for Thanksgiving. So nice. you inspired Yay. me. You inspired Good me. One. <laughs> um, well, congrats on um, really all of your success, but congrats on the recipe in food and wine. And then uh, just I'm really excited for you um, to think about this next chapter in your life, opening a restaurant, because I know that's ballsy. Um, I, I interviewed uh, Carrie Diamond uh, from Cherry Bomb. And, yeah, yeah. And she said, you know, she's opened, I think, two restaurants and she was like, never do it again. So she <laughs> she gives a ton of props to I used to live right where her restaurants were and um, I I was a regular. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good to know. She's, (laughs) she's incredible. Um, But yeah, she gives mad props to, to those who uh, get out there and open restaurants. So congrats to you. Super excited. We're going to wrap up and get to the final three, but I do want to say it's been really fun um, catching up with you. And I, again, all, all of those old, you know, the girls and the boys from um, Aiken, South Carolina, it's just so nice to see uh, all of their different levels of success right now, whether that's family or their careers, but um, just super, super proud of you. And I think it's just awesome uh, to look at what you've done the last uh, couple decades. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for uh, sharing it all with me. Let's get to the final three best advice you've ever been given. Okay. Um, I think I just like twofold. One is yeah. more of a saying, but my, it's something my mom um, said a lot that it never resonated when I was younger, but um, she, she always said, pick your battles. And I think that as I've, um, as I've grown in this industry, uh, that is a very important thing because you just, there, there's, there's, you can't, you can't have everything be the most important and you can't butt heads with every single person you work with. Um, so that's really a big thing. Um, and the other part, um, was when I was working for Mike Anthony as a sous chef at Gramercy Tavern, he, um, he said that everything is in my control and, um, and there's basically no one, no one holding me back. And I think, you know, a lot of people have been told something similar. Um, but I think in the restaurant industry, especially, uh, it can feel like, you know, you're getting yelled at in one direction or it's a very, you know, long hours and tiring. And, and to have someone who is such a, uh, you know, public figure in the cooking industry in the world, you know, especially in New York City, um, tell you that you have the power to choose where you go and you have all the tools that you need to, to, for someone to have that confidence in you is really um, the reason why I was able to take that next step and and become a chef myself. Nice. Well, good job, mom. Good job, Mike, because uh, it sounds like (laughs) that's really stuck with you. That's awesome. Um, and there's nothing like having someone that you believe in, believe in you. Agreed. Nothing and, like. and, and just a little note, cause we didn't talk about it today, but mentoring, um, in general, but also mentoring in a kitchen has been something that is probably the top two things on the reason why I'm a chef. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's because he, um, was such a great mentor to me. Awesome. I also, I always, I always talk about her, but I love her so much. Sarah Moulton, I just interviewed her as well. 
And that's been a big thing for her, her entire life. Her mentor was Julia Child, and she just sort of ended up taking that on and not only, and really mentoring and teaching home cooks. She loves, she loves the home Mm -hmm. cook. And so I think, you know, we do see a lot of the negative side of kitchens based on reality TV shows and whatnot. And so I love the idea that um, working in a kitchen can be, while stressful, a very beautiful, positive place. Agreed. Awesome. That's awesome. I love that so much. Okay. Uh, What's your happy place? Um, so I've never been much of a homebody. Um, and I, I, of course I love spending time with my family and my friends, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I've always been, you know, anxious when I have too much free time or when I'm, when I'm at home, um, and vice versa, I think in, in my career and working in restaurants, if you're only doing that too it's the it's the direct opposite it's very stressful and uh, mm-hmm. definitely not relaxing um and i think that my happy place is where that intersection um has happened so um my last restaurant when i worked at 232 bleaker i was able to work with a lot of um really talented folks that um had become great friends as well and so to kind of be in that place where um, people knew you so well and you um, you kind of were working towards that common thing and it was still work, but it was there was a lot of very fun moments mm. um, kind of mingled in. I think that's that's where I am the happiest um, kind of when my work life mixes a little bit with you know that not personal life, but that um, yeah. the people the 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 persons that you know, mm-hmm that are also friends. Yeah. It's kind of that you stop and go, I'm getting paid for this right now. Right. Yeah, exactly. No. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I've had several friends in newsrooms over the years and they were the reasons why I stayed in the business so long because at three o'clock we're all slamming to get a five o'clock newscast on and we're cracking up at something ridiculously stupid. And you look around and you're like, I cannot believe I'm getting paid for this right now. So I totally get that. That's awesome. Um, uh, what do you crave in all things food, food and drink, either one? What do you crave? What What's just like, it always sounds good to you. Always Japanese food. Always. Always. Yeah. And not the, not what a lot of people, a lot of people kind of crave those Japanese like ramen and dumplings and sushi. I kind of crave the outskirts of um, what mainstream Japanese here is. So like I'm the person when you see a sushi menu, I'm ordering some of like the little appetizer dishes or I love the Japanese tea houses here in New York that serve the little rice bowls. Um, but uh, hands down, Jap- any any kind of Japanese restaurant is is what I crave awesome. on my days off. What I cook at home. <laughs> I love that. Um, and then anything in 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 the beverage world, uh, wine, um, chocolate milk, yeah. tea. I am, well, I am a matcha drinker. I had to give up coffee about four years ago. So I guess I crave it because it's my caffeine um, and I've learned to love it. But um, I guess if it's not matcha or water, um, I do like vermouth. And when I was, um, I got to take a a trip to Spain a few years ago with a bunch of New York professionals. And um, there was this one day we were driving through the countryside and they said, we're going to make a vermouth stop. And I was like, a vermouth stop, what's that? And it was like the most most gorgeous countryside. It was a sunny, beautiful day. And we all stopped at this little um, 
this little house that was a bar and um, they gave us vermouth uh, with olives and a lemon twist and ice. And uh, since then, that's been my drink of choice. Fantastic. Vermouth. I don't think I've ever heard that right? from, from anyone. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, well, you've been super it's fun. Like <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't think my, my grandma never drank vermouth, but it's very, um, it's very different. So I'll have to try that, but it's kind of like, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of thinking like martini ish. It's, it's a lot. It's yes, but it's a lot lighter, lighter, lighter. Okay. Awesome. Um, well, this has been super fun. Not only, uh, catching up after all the, after, after the seventh grade, you know, um, when we were very good pals, but again, I'm just super excited to hear your story and I'm super excited to, uh, see what's next from you. And so if anyone who's listening, if you want to follow her, uh, you can follow her on Instagram. Actually, that's where I caught up with a lot of your stuff. Susie cups, your, um, is your name on Instagram. Yeah, look out for uh, what's coming next. Hopefully I'll have something for you next year. Yay, look out for Suzy Cups, everybody. Um, and I'm very, very excited to see what happens next. So good luck to you. You have been fantastically fun. And I'm, again, very excited to see what's next for you. So is Thanks. Samson. <laughs> been listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Close. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.